You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a compilation of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Festivals and Their Meaning. I'm on the Easter section. Uh, it is lecture 13 in the sequence of lectures, but lecture 5 in the Easter section. It is entitled The Teachings of the Risen Christ, given in The Hague on the 13th of April, 1912. I would like to speak today about a certain aspect of the mystery of Golgotha, of which I have often spoken before in more intimate anthroposophical gatherings. What there is to be said about the mystery of Golgotha is so extensive in range, so rich in content, and of such significance, that new light needs constantly to be shed upon it if we are even to begin to approach this greatest of all mysteries in the evolution of the earth and of humanity. The importance of the mystery of Golgotha can only be truly appreciated when we envisage two streams of evolution in man's earthly existence, the stream which preceded the mystery of Golgotha and the stream which, following it, will continue for the rest of the earth's existence. In the very early period of earth evolution, a kind of dreamlike, imaginative thinking was active. We must be quite clear that in those times people possessed faculties, whereby, if I may so express it, they were able to commune with beings of a higher cosmic order. From the book titled Occult Science, Readers Aside, also known as an outline of esoteric science, and of Readers Aside, and other works of mine, you know something of these beings of the higher hierarchies. In the ordinary consciousness of today, people know little of these things for their intercourse with them has to a large extent been broken off. In early periods of human evolution it was different. It would, of course, be wrong to imagine that coming into contact with the being of the higher hierarchies in those ancient times had any similarity with the way people meet nowadays, incarnated in physical bodies. What these beings communicated to man in the original primeval language of the earth was quite different. It could be apprehended only by spiritual organs. Momentous secrets of existence were communicated by these beings, secrets which flowed into the human heart and awakened the consciousness that above, where we today see only clouds and stars, earthly existence is connected with divine worlds. Beings belonging to these worlds came down in a spiritual manner to people on earth revealing themselves in such a way that they communicated to human beings what we may call primal wisdom. The revelations proceeding from these beings contained an abundance of wisdom which earthly man could not have discovered by himself. For at the beginning of earth evolution, the period of which I am now speaking, people were able to discover only very little through their own faculties. Whatever vision, whatever perceptive knowledge they possessed was received from their divine teachers. 
These teachings were infinitely rich in content, but one thing they did not include, a thing which it was unnecessary for people of those times to know, but which is essential for present-day humanity. They never spoke of the two fundamental boundaries of our earthly life, birth and death. Needless to say, in the short time available today, I cannot attempt to speak of everything that was communicated to the human race in those ancient times by divine teachers. A great deal is already known to you. But I want now to stress the point that among all those teachings there were none concerning birth and death. The reason for this was that in those times and for a considerable period thereafter, people did not need knowledge of the facts of birth and death. The whole consciousness of mankind has changed in the course of earth evolution. The animal consciousness of today, even that of the higher animals, must never be compared with human consciousness, even as it was in those ages of primitive antiquity. Yet we may perhaps find a point of reference by considering the life of the animal today. This lies at a level below the human, whereas the earliest form of the life of primitive man lay in a certain respect above the present level of the human, in spite of having certain animal-like characteristics. If you think about the animal without preconceived ideas, you will see that it is unconcerned with birth and death because of the intermediate nature of its consciousness. Disregarding birth, although here too we can discern this fact, we need think only of the carefree lack of concern with which the animal lives on toward death. The animal accepts death. It is simply transformation of its existence, a transition from individual to group soul existence. The animal does not experience any such deep incision into life as is the case with the human being. Now, as I said, primeval man, in spite of his animal-like organization, was at a higher level than the animal. He possessed an instinctive clairvoyance which enabled him to commune with his divine teachers. But like the animal of today, he was unconcerned with the approach of death. It never occurred to him, if I may so express it, to pay any particular attention to death. And why? With his instinctive clairvoyance, primeval man was clearly aware of what was still his nature, even after his descent through birth from the spiritual world into the physical world. He knew that his own essential being had entered into a physical body. And because he could say with certain knowledge, quote, an immortal, eternal being lives in me, close quote, the transformation taking place at death was not a matter of interest or concern to him. At most, the experience was like that of a snake when it sheds its skin and must replace it with another. The impression of birth and death was taken much more as a matter of course and made far less drastic incision into human existence. People still had clear vision of the life of the soul. Today there is no such vision. In our age, the transition between sleep and the state of dream consciousness is hardly perceptible. The dream, with its pictures, is regarded as part of the sleeping state, as itself a semi-sleep. But what came to primeval man in his dream pictures 
was really a kind of near-waking condition. He knew that what he received in these dream pictures was reality. In this way he felt and experienced his life of soul, and questions about birth and death were simply not as crucial to him as they must inevitably be today. This condition was very marked in the earliest epochs of human evolution on the earth, but it faded gradually away. As people began to be more and more aware that death makes a drastic incision not only into earthly physical life, but into the life of the soul as well, their attention was inevitably drawn to the fact of birth. Together with this change in human consciousness, earthly life assumed increasing importance, since experience of the life of soul was growing dim and people felt themselves more and more removed during their sojourn on earth from an existence of soul and spirit. This condition became ever more apparent as the time of the mystery of Golgotha approached. Among the Greeks it had reached the point where they felt life outside the physical body to be a shadow existence and regarded death as an event fraught with tragedy. The knowledge received by human beings from their earliest divine teachers did not extend to the facts of birth and death. Before the mystery of Golgotha took place, humanity was exposed to the danger of having to face experiences in earthly life of birth and death that would be unknown and incomprehensible to earthly consciousness. Now, let us imagine that those early divine teachers of humanity had descended to the earthly realm at the time of the mystery of Golgotha. They might have been able, through the mysteries, to reveal themselves to a few specially prepared pupils or people of knowledge, to communicate the wealth of ancient divine wisdom to priests trained in the mysteries. But in the whole range of these teachings, there would have been nothing concerning birth and death. The riddle of death would not have been presented to man through the revelations of this divine wisdom, not even within the mysteries. And in their outer life on earth, people would have observed facts of vital importance and interest to them, namely the facts of birth and death, of which the gods had said nothing. And why? You must approach this matter with a certain freedom from bias, laying aside many of the conceptions that have become part of traditional religion today, and be clear about the following. The beings of the higher hierarchies who were the divine teachers of primeval humanity had never experienced birth and death in their own realms. For birth and death, in the form in which they are experienced on the earth, are experienced only on the earth and only by human beings on the earth. The death of an animal and the dying of a plant are altogether different matters from the death of a human being. And in the divine worlds where dwelt the first great teachers of mankind, there is no birth or death, but only transformation, metamorphosis from one state of existence into another. These divine teachers, therefore, had no inner understanding of the experience of dying and being born. Now to these divine teachers belongs the host of beings connected with Yahweh, with the Bodhisattvas, with the early interpreters of the world to humanity. Just think how in the Old Testament, for example, 
the mystery of death gradually confronts human beings with an increasing sense of tragedy, and how, in fact, none of the teaching conveyed by the Old Testament gives any adequate or revealing illumination on the subject of death. If, therefore, nothing had happened at the time of the mystery of Golgotha that differed from what had already happened in the realm of the earth and in the higher worlds connected with the earth, human beings would have faced a terrible situation in their earthly evolution. On the earth they would have lived through the experiences of birth and death, which now confronted them not as simple metamorphoses, but as drastic transitions in their whole human existence. Yet they could have learned nothing of the significance and purpose of death and birth for their earthly life. In order the teachings concerning birth and death might gradually enter humanity, it was necessary for the being we call the Christ to enter the realm of earthly life, the Christ who indeed belongs to those worlds from which the ancient teachers had also come, but who in accordance with a decision taken in these divine worlds accepted for himself a destiny different from that of the other beings of the divine hierarchies connected with the earth. He lent himself to the divine decree of higher worlds that he should incarnate in an earthly body and with his own divine soul pass through birth and death on earth. You see, therefore, that what came to pass in the mystery of Golgotha is not merely an inner affair of humanity or of the earth, but is equally an affair of the gods. Through the event on Golgotha, the gods themselves, for the first time, acquired inner knowledge of the mystery of death and of birth on the earth, for they had previously had no part in either. We have this momentous fact before us, a divine being resolved to pass through human destiny on the earth in order to undergo the same fate, the same experiences in earthly existence as are the lot of man. Many things concerning the mystery of Golgotha have become known to mankind. A tradition exists, the Gospels exist, the whole New Testament exists, and modern humanity approaches the mystery of Golgotha for the most part through the New Testament and such interpretation of it as is possible today. But very little real insight into the mystery of Golgotha is to be gained from the interpretations of the New Testament current at the present time. It is necessary that modern humanity should pass through the stage of acquiring knowledge in this external way, but knowledge so gained is itself external. There is no realization today of how differently people in the first Christian centuries looked back to the mystery of Golgotha. How differently, in a way that became impossible later on, it was regarded by those who understood its import. At the time of the mystery of Golgotha, although the change I have described had indeed taken place, vestiges of ancient instinctive clairvoyance still survived in certain individuals. They were no more than vestiges, it is true, but they enabled people, until the 4th century A.D., to look back to the mystery of Golgotha in a quite different way from that which was possible later on. There is significance in the fact of which some slight confirmation can be found 
in historical traditions emanating from the earliest church fathers, that written traditions were not valued as highly as the testimony of those who had received information concerning Christ Jesus from direct eyewitnesses, or from those who had been pupils of the apostles themselves, or, again, pupils of pupils of the apostles, and so on. This continued until the 4th century A.D., so that a living connection was still claimed for those who were teaching at that time. By far the greater part of the historical records have been destroyed, but those who study attentively what is left can still discover by these external means what value was placed upon the testimony, quote, I have had a teacher, he too had a teacher, close quote, until at the end of the line was an apostle who had seen the Savior face to face. Of this tradition a great deal has been lost, but even more has been lost of the genuine esoteric wisdom which still existed during the first four centuries of Christendom through the remaining vestiges of old clairvoyant insight. External tradition has lost well-nigh everything that was known in those days about the risen Christ, the Christ who had passed through the mystery of Golgotha, and then, in a spirit body, like the early teachers of primeval humanity, had taught certain chosen disciples after his resurrection. Footnote, quote, Not baptism alone sets us free, but knowledge, gnosis. Who we are, what we have become, where we were, whither we have sunk, whither we hasten, whence we are redeemed, what is birth and what is rebirth, close quote, from fragments from the Eastern School of Valentinus, copied by his pupil Theodotus. End of footnote. In the story, for example, of Christ meeting the disciples who had gone out to seek him, there are indications in the New Testament, but scanty indications even there, of the significance of the teachings given by the risen Christ to his disciples. And Paul himself regards his experience at Damascus as a teaching which, given by the risen Christ, made the man Saul into Paul. In those early times it was fully understood that Christ Jesus, the risen one, had secrets of a very special kind to impart to human beings. The fact that later on they were unable to receive these communications was due entirely to their own human evolution. For it was necessary that man should begin to unfold those forces of soul which later were to operate in the exercise of human freedom and of the human intellect. Evidence of this is clear from the 15th century onward, but its beginnings can be traced to the 4th century. The question naturally arises, what was the content and substance of the teachings which could be given by the risen Christ to his chosen disciples? He had appeared to them in the same manner in which the divine teachers had appeared to primeval humanity. But now, if I may so express it, he was able to tell them out of divine wisdom what he had experienced and other divine beings had not. From his own divine vantage point, he was able to explain to them the mystery of birth and death. He was able to convey to them the knowledge that in the future there would arise in the people of earth a day consciousness unable to perceive directly the immortal element in human life. 
a consciousness that is extinguished in sleep, so that in sleep too the immortal element is invisible even to the eyes of the soul. But he was also able to make his initiated disciples aware that it is possible for the mystery of Golgotha to be drawn into the field of man's understanding. He was able to make clear to them what I will try to express in the following words. They can only be feeble, stammering words, because human language has no others to offer. Quote, the human body has gradually become so dense, the death forces in it so powerful, that although man will now be able to develop his intellect and his own inner freedom, he can do this only in a life that definitely experiences death, a life into which death makes a marked incision, a life from which vision of the immortal soul is obliterated during waking consciousness. But you can receive into your souls a certain wisdom. It is the wisdom which, through the mystery of Golgotha, my own being has made possible for you, something with which you yourselves can be filled if only you can attain the insight that Christ came down from spheres beyond the earth to the people of earth, if only you can come to realize that here on the earth there is something which cannot be perceived by earthly means, but only by means higher than those of the earth. If you can behold the mystery of Golgotha as a divine event within earthly life, if you can apprehend that a God has passed through the mystery of Golgotha, through everything else that comes to fulfillment on earth, you can acquire earthly wisdom. But in order to understand the significance of death to humanity, it would avail you nothing. Earthly wisdom would suffice only if you, like the people of earlier times, felt no intense preoccupation with death. But since you must needs be concerned with death, you must strengthen your perceptive faculty by drawing into it a force stronger than all earthly forces of perception, a force so strong that you can realize that in the mystery of Golgotha there came to pass something which broke all earthly laws of nature. If you can include in your beliefs only the laws of earthly nature, you will, it is true, be able to observe death, but you will never discover its significance for human life. But if you can attain the insight that the earth has now, for the first time, received its true meaning and purpose, that at this midpoint of earth evolution a divine event has taken place in the mystery of Golgotha, an event beyond the comprehension of earthly means of perception, then you are preparing a special power of wisdom. Close quote. Steiner again. This power of wisdom is the same as the power of faith. It is a special power of spirit wisdom, a power of faith born of wisdom. Strength of soul is expressed when a person says, quote, I believe, I know through faith, what I can never know by earthly means. This is a stronger force in me than if I only allowed myself to have knowledge of what can be fathomed merely by earthly means. A person is lacking even were he to possess all the science known on earth, if his wisdom is able to embrace only what can be grasped by natural laws. 
to perceive the reality of the super-earthly within the earthly, a far greater inner activity must be unfolded. Contemplation of the mystery of Golgotha gives a stimulus to unfold such inner activity. This teaching that a god had lived through a human destiny and had thereby united himself with the destiny of the earth, an experience hitherto unknown to the gods in their own realm, was proclaimed over and over again in ever new variations by the risen Christ to his disciples. And it worked with stupendous power. Try to realize the power of it by thinking of the conditions prevailing today. It is less demanding for a person to grasp what his thinking has extracted from earthly concepts or from the generally acknowledged traditional tenets of religion than to attain understanding of the fact that there were some among the gods who until the mystery of Golgotha possessed no wisdom concerning birth and death, but who for the salvation of mankind came to acquire this wisdom. To penetrate into the realm of divine wisdom needs a very definite strength. No particular strength is required to repeat from some catechism, quote, God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-divine, close quote, and so forth. Simply use the little prefix all and you have the definition of the divine, ready-made but utterly nebulous. People do not muster the courage today to penetrate into the wisdom of the gods. But this must happen. The divine beings themselves acquired some of this wisdom through the fact that one from among them passed through human birth and human death. That this secret should have been entrusted to Christ's first disciples after his resurrection is a fact of supreme moment as was also the clear knowledge given to them that man once possessed the power to behold and understand the eternal nature of his own soul. This understanding, this insight into the eternal nature of the human soul, can never be acquired through brain knowledge, through the intellectual cogitated knowledge which uses the brain as its instrument. It can never in any real sense be acquired unless, as in earlier times, Nature comes to the help of man to develop the kind of knowledge based upon a particular evolution of the human rhythmic system. Yoga achieved much as long as the old instinctive clairvoyance could still come to its aid, and the last possessors of instinctive clairvoyance were still practicing yoga. But the modern Oriental, the Indian, about whom many Westerners hold such illusory ideas today, no longer comes anywhere near a real vision of the eternal essence of the human soul when he engages in his exercises. He lives for the most part in illusions. He has a fleeting experience of some elemental earthly reality and then looks into his sacred books to find an interpretation of this experience. Real and fundamental knowledge of the divine nature of the human soul can only be gained in two ways either as primeval humanity attained it, or as we can again attain it today, in a much more spiritual way, through intuition, through knowledge which develops through imagination and then inspiration and finally becomes intuition. 
Now, during earthly life, the thinking part of the soul has poured itself into the human nervous system. It has built it up, formed, and molded it, and no longer has a separate existence. In the rhythmic system, it is only partially absorbed, giving us at the most some points of reference for further development. But the really eternal element of the human soul is hidden in the metabolic system, in the most earthly and material sphere of our being. Outwardly, it is indeed the most material. But just because of this, the spiritual remains separate from it. The spiritual is drawn into, absorbed, by the other material parts of the organism, by the brain and the rhythmic system, and is no longer there independently. It is present, however, in the sphere of pure materiality. But to use it, we would have to develop the ability to see, to perceive, by means of this materiality. This was a possibility in primeval humanity, and although it is not a condition to be striven after, it may still occur today in pathological states. It is known by very few, for example, that the secret of Nietzsche's style entitled Thus Spake Zarathustra lies in the fact that he imbibed certain poisonous substances which brought into play within him a particular rhythm which is the distinctive style of this work. In Nietzsche, a distinct material substratum was really doing the thinking. This, needless to say, is a pathological condition, although in a certain respect there is also a kind of grandeur in it. We should not have illusions about such things, any more than we should about the nature of intuition, which lies at the opposite end of the scale. We must understand what it means that Nietzsche should have imbibed certain poisons, a procedure not to be imitated, and that these substances lead to an etherization, an etherealized mode of experience in the human organism. This irradiates the thinking and produces what we find in Thus Spake Zarathustra. Intuition, on the other hand, is able to perceive the spirit and soul as such, separated from matter. Nothing of a material nature is at work in intuition, as described in the books titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds or titled Occult Science and Outline. Here we have two opposite poles of spiritual knowledge. But in the mysteries into which Christ sent his message, it was still known that human beings once possessed a sublime knowledge born of the working of material substances, born of metabolism. No attempt was made to awaken the old matter-born knowledge in the manner in which this had been done in primeval humanity, nor in the degenerate way subsequently pursued by hash-hish eaters and others who wished to acquire through the workings of matter knowledge not otherwise accessible. But such knowledge was woken instead by clothing the mystery of Golgotha in ritual, in mantric formula above all in the whole structure of the mystery as revelation, offering, transubstantiation, communion, in the administration of the sacrament of the Eucharist in bread and wine. It was not poisons, therefore, that were offered to the human being, but the Lord's Supper, clothed in what arises from the mantric formula of the Mass, and from its fourfold membering, gospel, offering, transubstantiation, communion. It was the intention that after the fourth part of the Mass, 
the communion, actual communion, among the faithful should take place, with the aim of giving at least an intimation that the insights which were once based upon ancient instinctive metabolic knowledge must be regained. It is difficult for people today to form any conception of this metabolism-born knowledge, because they have no inkling of how much more a bird knows than a man, although not in the intellectual abstract sense, how much more even a camel, an animal wholly given up to the process of metabolism, knows than a man. It is, of course, a dim knowledge, a, a dream knowledge. What was contained in the metabolic process of primeval man has today reached a stage of degeneration. But on the basis of the earliest Christian teachings, the sacrament at the altar was conceived as a means of pointing to the need to reacquire a knowledge of the eternal nature of the human soul. At the time when the risen Christ was teaching his initiated disciples, it was beyond human power to acquire such knowledge independently. It was taught them by Christ. And until the fourth century of Christendom, this knowledge was, in a certain sense, still alive. Then it ossified in the Western Catholic Church. Because although the Mass was retained, the Church could no longer interpret it. The Mass, conceived merely as a continuation of the Lord's Supper described in the Bible, can obviously have no meaning unless it is given meaning. The establishment of the Mass, with its wonderful ritual, its reproduction of the four stages of the mysteries, stems from the fact that the risen Christ was also the teacher of those who were able to receive these teachings in a higher esoteric sense. In the centuries following, there remained only an elementary kind of instruction about the mystery of Golgotha. A faculty was developing in man, whereby, to begin with, this knowledge concerning the mystery of Golgotha was veiled, concealed. Human beings had first to become firmly rooted in what is connected with death. This is the stage of early medieval civilization. Traditions have, however, been preserved. The rituals of some secret societies existing at the present time contain formula which, for those who understand and recognize them, are unmistakably reminiscent of the teachings given by the risen Christ to his initiated disciples. But the individuals who come together in all kinds of Masonic and other secret societies do not understand what their ritual contains, have not the remotest inkling of it. It would be possible to learn a great deal from these rituals, because they contain much wisdom, albeit in dead forms. Yet this does not happen. But now that mankind has passed through that period in evolution which shed darkness over the mystery of Golgotha, the time has come when human longings are reaching out for a deeper knowledge of this mystery. Such a longing can be satisfied only through spiritual science, only through the advent of a new knowledge, which works in a spiritual way. The full significance for humanity of the mystery of Golgotha will then again be acquired. Then people will again come to realize that the most important teachings of all were given not by the Christ, who until the mystery of Golgotha lived in a physical body, 
but by the risen Christ after the mystery of Golgotha. People will acquire a new understanding for words of an initiate, such as Paul, quote, If Christ be not risen, then is your faith vain. Close quote. After the event at Damascus, Paul knew that everything depended upon grasping the reality of the risen Christ, upon the power of the risen Christ being united with the human being in such a way that he can affirm, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote. It is an all-too-characteristic contrast to this that there should have arisen in the 19th century a kind of theology which has really no desire to know anything about the reality of the risen Christ. It is a significant symptom of our times that a tutor of theology in Basel, Overbeck, a friend of Nietzsche, should have written a book in which he sets out to prove that modern theology is no longer Christian. He concedes that there may still be a great deal in the world that is Christian, but he declares that the theology taught by Christian theologians is not. That, in effect, is the view of Overbeck, himself a Christian theologian, and this view is brilliantly substantiated in his book. Mankind has come to a point where those officially appointed by their church to tell people something of the mystery of Golgotha are least of all capable of doing so. This gives rise to a longing in people to learn something about the need for Christ, a need that every individual may experience in his heart. I have often spoken of the many services which anthroposophy must render to humanity today. One significant service will be that rendered to religious life. The founding of a new religion is not intended. The event of a god passing through the human destiny of birth and death gave the earth its full meaning and purpose and can never be surpassed. It is quite evident to anyone who understands its origin that there can be no question of inaugurating a new religion after Christianity. To believe such a thing possible would be to have a false idea of Christianity. But as humanity itself makes strides in supersensible knowledge, the mystery of Golgotha and together with it the Christ being himself will be more and more deeply understood. Anthroposophy desires to contribute to this understanding what perhaps it alone at the present time is able to contribute. For it is hardly possible anywhere else to hear about the divine teachers of primeval humanity who spoke of all things but not of birth and death, of which they had no experience. It is anthroposophy which tells of the teacher who appeared to his initiated disciples in the same manner as that in which the divine primal teachers had appeared, but whose momentous teachings included the crucial one of how a god shared the human destiny of birth and death. This revelation was intended to give human beings the power to regard death, which had come to be a matter of great concern to them, in such a way that they would realize, quote, death indeed there is, but the soul is beyond its reach. Close quote. The fact that people could assert this is due to the mystery of Golgotha. Paul knew that if the mystery of Golgotha had not taken place, if Christ had not risen, the soul would be trapped in the destiny of the body. 
that is to say, in the dispersion of the elements of the body into the elements of the earth. Had Christ not risen, had he not united himself with earthly forces, the human soul would unite with the body between birth and death, would unite with all the molecules which became part of the earth through cremation or decomposition. At the end of earth evolution, human souls would eventually have gone the way of earthly matter. But by passing through the mystery of Golgotha, Christ wrests the human soul from this fate. The earth will go her way in the universe, but just as the human soul can emerge from the single human body, so will all human souls be able to free themselves from the earth and go forward to a new cosmic existence. Christ is thus intimately united with earth existence. But we can only understand this mystery by approaching it in the way I have described. To one or another the thought may occur, quote, What then of those who cannot believe in Christ? Close quote. Here, let me give you a reassurance. Christ died for all people, for those too who today cannot unite with him. The mystery of Golgotha is an objective fact, unaffected by human knowledge. Human knowledge, however, strengthens the inner forces of the soul. All the means, therefore, at the disposal of human knowledge, human feelings, and human will, must be applied in order that in the further course of earth evolution, the presence of Christ in this earth evolution shall be an experienced reality through direct knowledge. The end of Lecture 13